All right, good morning, Restoration Church. It is good to see you here this morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Dan Brown. I'm one of the elders here at Restoration. And uh, Pastor Kevin has given me the privilege of having the opportunity to speak this morning. So we're going to be uh, looking at Ruth chapter 3. So if you want to get your Bibles out and, and turn there, um, that's where we'll be this morning. But um, as, you're, as you're turning there and as we're getting started... Um, you know, something that we're going to see in this passage that it brought to my mind for this week is, I don't know how many of you have ever been, you know, set up on like uh, a blind date or, you know, had somebody who's tried to play matchmaker with you. Um, before I got married, when I was, you know, in my early, mid-20s, I was a youth pastor in a small town in western Washington. So it was a town of about a thousand people. So as, as you can imagine, uh, for a young single guy, not a lot of, you know, potential prospects. I pretty much probably knew every um, single girl that was in the town and determined pretty quickly that my future bride was probably not there. And so it, it seemed like at that point in my life, almost everybody I knew wanted to set me up with somebody. They had, you know, I had a friend from college who, she actually got a friend to drive up from Redding, California to meet me because she was convinced that was the girl I was going to end up marrying. And that, that didn't work out. I had um, actually one of, the, <laughs> one of the elders at the church, actually I take it back, it was the pastor of the church that I was working at, told me when they first hired me, there's a young lady in the church here that would really love to date you, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. So, but if you're interested, ask me and then we and. It was a church of a hundred, so it didn't take me that long to figure out who it was, but uh, that didn't end up being the person I married either. Um, but what actually happened, a true story, the way that I ended up not meeting my wife, but, you know, started dating my wife, was through somebody who played uh, matchmaker. Uh, there was a, a youth pastor's wife. I'd interned under him when I was in college. Um, his name was Dave Tompkins. His wife was Trish. And I knew Dave and Trish after I interned for him for about seven years. And after about seven years, one day Trish was praying for me that I would find a wife. Because she knew that that was something I really wanted. And there was another um, young lady who'd been in their youth group that was still single at that point in time. And Trish was praying for her that God would help her find a husband. And the way Trish would tell us the story is that one day she was praying for me. And she prayed for this other young lady. And it was like a light bulb went off in her head. And God was like, you need to get those two together. So that became Trisha's mission in life. And I, I tell you the truth, and this is right, isn't it, Malia? She was relentless at this. She did not give up easily. Um, their youth group every summer would do a ministry trip. And while I was working in Winlock, they did a ministry trip. So it was at Hood River that you guys were at. And so she, she called me out of the blue and said, hey, Dan, you, know, you should come up and, and visit the, the youth group. Up, up here in Hood River, I think you'd, you'd have fun connecting with some of the people you knew. You know, so I thought I was just going up there to hang out with some of the guys that I'd worked with when I was, you know, interning there and stuff. But Trisha's alternative or ulterior motive was Malia was there. And she wanted, you know, Malia and I to, to say hi. And I, I don't know what she thought was going to happen. She thought we'd like lock eyes and hear harps and music and, but, what happened is, you know, we said hi, and Lisa says, I have to go do laundry. And that was, that was the extent of our, our first reconnecting after seven years. Um, so that didn't happen. Um, about a month later, I was passing through Yakima on a, a week of vacation, and Trish 
was going to try again. So I came into town. I, I met Trish at the card shop she was running at the time. And she said, well, I've arranged. There's been a lot of things that have changed around Yakima since you interned here in the last seven years. So I arranged for somebody to give you a tour and just kind of drive you around and show you what's going on. Well, it was Malia. <laughs> and the, the funny thing is, I found this out much later. Malia knew what Trish was trying to do. And Malia was not a fan, to say the least. So that, that, that driving tour she gave me was probably the least friendly she has ever been to anybody in her life. It was pretty cold and clinical. She goes, yeah, there's the new golf course. There's this, there's that. Okay, we're done. Get out of my car. We're done. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was close. And then I think it was either that evening or, or the next day, um, I was having dinner at Dave and Trisha's house. And lo and behold, Malia and her family show up to have dinner with us and once again, I'm still completely clueless. And it was about a week later, actually, on a bowling outing with the college group that some other friends invited me to that Malia and I actually started talking and that kind of began our, our dating relationship. But, you know, that's, it, it's funny. Every once in a while, somebody has that idea to play matchmaker and it works. And we're going to see this morning in the book of Ruth an example of Naomi. God uses her in, in, in a similar way. So Ruth Chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And as we continue that story, you know, what's going on in the book of Ruth? This is really an epic story, a love story between two people. And we've come to that point where Naomi decides to play matchmaker. So let me just kind of, if you haven't been here, let me just kind of catch you up with where we are in the story. In in chapter 1, Naomi and her family, they leave Bethlehem. There's been this horrific famine in Bethlehem. And so they leave from Bethlehem and they go down to the, the, the foreign nation of Moab. And, and they leave the, the, the land, the, the promised land where God has called them to live as the child, part of the, the nation of Israel, as the Jewish people. And they go to this foreign land. And while they're in this foreign land, Naomi's two sons marry two Moabite women, which is, you know, in violation of, of God's law and not what we would have ever considered to have been God's will. But then after that happens, as they're living in Moab, Elimelech, that's Naomi's husband, and her two sons who have married these Moabite women, all three of the men in the family die. And eventually, when things in Bethlehem return more to normal and and God's blessing and there's food there once again, Naomi decides that she's going to return to her home in in Bethlehem. And so one of the the Moabite daughters-in-law stays behind, but the other one, who is Ruth, the, the, the subject of our book that we're looking at, decides that she will go with. And she commits to Naomi and says, where you go, I'll go. And I'm going to follow you. And she follows her back and they go back to Bethlehem um, together. And when Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, they have basically nothing. And they return pretty much as paupers and as beggars with no means of earning an income for themselves. And so what Ruth does to, in whatever small way she can as a, as a young woman in that culture, in that society, who can't really go out and earn a living. She does what she can, and she goes, and she does what's called gleaning. And she goes out into the fields, and she just picks up the leftover scraps from the harvest. And as she is going through and, and, and doing that, the, one of the turning points of the book in, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, it says, and she, talking about Ruth, happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And, you know, as Pastor Kevin's talked about, it wasn't just something that happened. That was the providence of God at work. 
that God brought her to that point where she would come across the path of Boaz and the two of them would meet as part of his divine plan. And so we're going to look now, chapter 3 this morning, the next part in the, the, the story of Ruth and Boaz, and we're going to see how God uses Naomi to play matchmaker. So let's pray as we head into that. Father God, I thank you that there are not things that just happen in our lives, but that you are a God who is in control, a God that we can trust in your sovereignty and in your providence. Thank you that we can see your hand at work through the story of Ruth, and as we look back on our lives, we can see your hand at work in our lives as well. I pray this morning as we continue on looking at the story of Ruth that we would see the truths that you have for us to learn this morning. God, that you would, just your spirit would speak to our hearts, that you would open our eyes and that our lives would be changed and transformed by the truths we learn, by the truths we are reminded of. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ruth chapter 3 I want you to look at verses 1 through 5 with me, and you can either read along. If you need a Bible, I think we've got some ushers in the back who could bring you one. You just want to put your hand, and they'll also be up on the screen as well. So Ruth chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 5, the start. It says, And then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, talking about Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So it it might seem like Naomi's kind of concocting a scheme, kind of working up, (coughs) excuse me, this plan to to bring um, Ruth and Boaz together here. But if, if we look a bit closer, I don't really think it's a scheme that she has, this thing that she's trying to devise to bring these two people together. I think what's happened is that God has finally, again, given Naomi hope. If you remember, when she came back from Bethlehem, what did Naomi say? She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She had lost hope. She was in despair. But God has given her, through Ruth's encounter with Boaz, hope. Because she sees in Boaz the one that God is going to use to change their circumstances. Because as Pastor Kevin pointed out last week, Boaz was a close relative. He was one of our redeemers. Um, One of the things, if you've heard me preach before, maybe you've heard me say this, maybe you haven't. One of my passions is is, is biblical history. I I love to, to, to study and to learn more and more about you know, the, 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 the specific culture and, and setting that the Bible was written in. Um, because, you know, that, that Jewish mindset, that ancient Middle Eastern mindset and culture, 
pretty different from, you know, the 21st century Western culture that we live in today. I mean, just some of the, the traditions, the, the, the laws, the, the ways that they did things, even the way that they thought was a lot different. And as I've studied that and I've gained a greater understanding of that, I find that as I come back and I study a passage like Ruth chapter 3, it helps me see and understand things in, you know, I guess in a, in a greater way. And, I, and, and I'm able to, to see and understand more of what's going on in the passage. So, so with that in mind, this morning, there's going to be about three or four times, we're going to kind of dive into some of that history and, and culture and tradition to try and help you see a little bit of what's going on here, that from our Western culture, as you read that, you know, we just think this looks like a funny plan that Naomi's come up with. But there's a lot that's underlying it culturally. So I want to try and help you grasp that. And unfortunately, part of that includes, I'm going to have to try and teach you a little bit of Hebrew this morning. Just one word. It's fairly easy to pronounce. Um, and trust me, it's going to be on the screen here in a second. It's spelled phonetically because I couldn't, I didn't want to take the time on my Mac to figure out where the Hebrew characters were in the, in the whole font thing and all that. That would have been a mess. But um, when Naomi's talking about who Boaz is, and she refers to Boaz as her close relative, the word she uses, and this is your Hebrew word for this morning, is ga'al. Okay? Ga, and that's phonetically, ga'al. Can you say that? Ga'al. Okay? Ga'al literally means the protector. So Boaz, Naomi saw in Boaz their ga'al, their protector. Um, and for the Jewish people of that day and age, I mean, and even today, I think, in the Jewish culture, the, there's a very strong sense of family for people. Um, you know, the, the, the members of a family understood and had a deep and abiding sense of, of duty, knew that they had to care for, and that they had to protect one another. So according to Jewish law, there were certain situations in which the closest relative had responsibilities to care for others. The Ga'al had the responsibility to care for members of their family who were weak, who were oppressed, who were in great need. The Ga'al was the one that, according to the law, was to act as the redeemer for the family. And one of the most important areas where that whole aspect applies had to do with the idea of land ownership. And land ownership for the Jewish people wasn't just something that this is the place where I live, but I mean, it had very deep, abiding, long-lasting spiritual implications as well. Because if you remember back to the very beginning of the nation of Israel, it began with with Abraham. And when God called Abraham from the land of Ur, what did God say to Abraham? God said to Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. God's saying to Abraham, I'm going to take you from here, the only place you've ever known, and I'm going to take you to this new land that I am giving to you. And so there's the story of Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob where they have been led to this land. And then God has promised them, this is the promised land. And God lays out in the book of Genesis, the borders of the land. This is the land I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. And so finally, Jacob, and Jacob has his 12 sons. And if you remember, there's the story of Joseph, and they, Joseph is sold into slavery, and he goes down, he's taken to Egypt, and then there's the famine back in the, the promised land. And so the brothers all go down there to, um, 
to buy food, not knowing they're buying food from Joseph. But eventually, all the children of Israel, all the children of Jacob, those 12 sons and Jacob, all end up living in Egypt. And eventually, the Pharaoh that Joseph was under dies, and the other Pharaoh now becomes afraid because the family of Jacob has grown with the 12 sons. And so they begin to oppress the children of Israel. And they are um, basically enslaved there in Egypt. And so that's where we jump ahead about 400 years to the story of Moses. And Moses comes in, and God uses Moses to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt and leads them back to the land of Israel. Okay, And they're going back to where? Back to the promised land that God had given them. This whole thing is about, this is the land that God's promised. You're going back there. They go back to the land, and, and Moses dies before they go into the land. Then Joshua's the new leader. Joshua leads them in. They conquer the land. They drive out most of the people there. They're not completely obedient, because like all children, there are areas we just don't always obey. And that's what they do. They don't obey completely. They don't drive out everybody, but they drive out most of the people. They conquer the land. And at the end of the book of Joshua, as you read... There's a few chapters at the end of Joshua where it is Joshua communicating to the children of Israel. For each tribe, this is the specific area of land that has been given to you by God. And within each tribe, each family had specific spots of land. And so the land that you and your family owned isn't just land that you went out and you bought. No, it is land that has been given to you by God. That is God's inheritance to you. So you, you have this land that has been given to you by God and is supposed to be a part of your family and continue on as a part of your family. But in that culture, how was land passed on? When you passed away, your land was passed on. It was inherited by your firstborn son. That's how land was passed down from one generation to another. So put yourself in the situation of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth, Naomi, there is no more son for the land to be passed down to. So what's going to happen to the land? If Ruth and Naomi die with no son to pass the land down to, that land is no longer a part of their family. Their family loses the land. And so there was something that God provided for. It's another part of the Jewish culture. It was a law that was called leveret marriage. The law of leveret marriage. And that was the way that this idea of the Ga'al came in, came into play in this story. And in the idea of, of leveret marriage, it provided for this exact type of situation that we're talking about. Where if a man died and his wife had not bore him a son, there, so there's a widow with no sons, then the nearest relative, and usually it was a brother, but the nearest relative then received the opportunity to buy the land, to keep the land in the family. And along with receiving the opportunity to buy the land, he would also marry the widow, so that the widow could have sons. And the firstborn son of the widow, under the law of leverant marriage, would have the name of the widow's original husband. So that the land that they had remained in her family and in her family, in his family's name. And that's how it was passed on. And that's why that was so important. So that the land would continue on in the family name. Um, Because if the land had been sold, then it would have to be bought back. The land would have to be 
redeemed to keep it in the name of the original family. But one of the things about the law, and this will come into play a little bit later in the book of Ruth, is that the law, although it provided for that, it did not require that the closest relative perform that duty. He didn't require the closest relative to buy the land and to marry the widow. So if the closest relative didn't want to act or could not act as the Redeemer, then that right passed on to the next closest relative and so on down the line until there was some relative in the family that was willing to act as the Gael, as to willing to act as the Redeemer. And so that's kind of what's, what's going to be going on here. And that's why Naomi has not really concocted this plan, but she realizes that in Boaz, there is the Gaal. There is the one who can act as the Redeemer, who could potentially marry Ruth to keep the land in the family and to provide for them, to redeem them. So that's what Naomi recognized in Boaz. And I would even go so far as to say that I think Naomi believes that God wants Boaz to be their God all. I think she believes and she saw that in Ruth crossing paths with one of the people in this community that was her relative. And, and the way that Boaz cared for her even in that situation, that Ruth, Naomi saw that that was where she believed God was leading. But... There's a potential problem that could make the whole plan a bit risky. We're going to get into that in a minute. But first, let's try and understand. The plan Naomi has laid out here. Naomi's plan. The first thing is the location. Naomi knew where Boaz was going to be that night. She knew he'd be at the threshing floor. How did she know? How did Naomi know that Boaz was going to be at the threshing floor that night? Well, where did... Boaz and Ruth meet. They met out in the fields while Boaz was doing the harvest and harvesting his grain. So after the harvest, the next thing that you would have to do, you would take your grain to the threshing floor. And the threshing floor was on the outskirts of town. It was this flat area of land where in the evenings, there'd be an evening wind that would blow in off the Mediterranean Sea. And you would take the grain and it would be crushed and kind of trampled under the feet of the cattle to separate the, the, the kernels of grain from the husks that were around them. And then the workers, in the evening when that breeze was blowing in, they would take these three-pronged rakes and they would toss the grain and the, the shafts of, of, of barley and whatnot up into the air. And the wind would blow the lighter husks and things away and the heavier grain would fall down and then they would gather that into these piles. And it was a long, tedious process that they had to go through. And it would take more than just one day. So at the end of the night... When they had finished that threshing and they had their piles of grain, the owner of the land, in this case Boaz, would stay there at the threshing floor and he would sleep there, probably with a few of his workers, to protect his harvest, which was there, until it could be bagged up and they could could take it back to his home. So Naomi knew that Boaz would be there at the threshing floor that night with his crop to protect it. So the next thing she says in verses 3 and 4 is she tells Ruth to prepare herself. She says, go wash, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. And in this culture, the idea of washing and anointing and preparing yourself, that wasn't something you did on a regular basis. Water was rare. It was scarce there. And the type of preparations that Naomi is telling Ruth to make are the type of preparations 
that a bride would make as she prepared for her wedding night. Naomi is telling Ruth, prepare yourself as if you were preparing to get married. She wants to make it abundantly clear to Boaz what is being proposed here. That there, this isn't just a casual question, but this is literally going to be a proposal that we're going to see coming up. So then we have, so we have, we have the location, we have kind of the preparation of who's going to prepare herself. But then we have the approach that comes, and that's going to be in verses 6 through 9. So let's look at those. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled, and he turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So here is Ruth. She's done what Naomi's asked. She's prepared herself. She's washed. She's anointed herself. She goes to the threshing floor. And then at night, after dark has fallen, so that people aren't going to recognize her, she comes in. She goes to Boaz, and Boaz is laying there at the, by, by his um, pile of, of barley there, protecting it. And he's covered himself with his, with his cloak. You know, it's, it's this big, heavy um, outer garment that he would wear. And he's kind of using it as a blanket. And so imagine, you know, if you're out sleeping somewhere, if you're taking a nap or you're, you're out camping, you're using a blanket to cover yourself up, to keep yourself warm, and somebody just lifts up the bottom of that and uncovers your bare feet, and suddenly the cold night air hits those, what are you going to do? You're going to do what Boaz is. Whoa, what's going on? Who just moved my blanket? And he sits up and he looks and he sees Ruth down there at his feet. But because of the darkness and because of the the cloak that she's wearing as well, he doesn't recognize her. And he asks, who are you? And that's, and that's when Ruth answers. And, and the, the answer that Ruth gives is, I think, the key verse of this entire passage. Ruth answers, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's a short sentence, but it's one that's just loaded with implications. You know, I mean, and there's a few levels of interpretation that we can get from that. I mean, the, the first one is the word he uses that, that Ruth uses for wings could also be used for a, a cloak or a coat. So I mean, there's the one basic interpretation of, you know, put your coat over me to help keep me warm because we're out here in, in the cool night air. But even going beyond that, there's the the actual meaning of it. I mean, because that's kind of the surface meaning, but the deeper, more important meaning is the proposal of marriage. Because I truly believe, and Boaz's response shows this to be true, that Boaz understood as soon as Ruth said that, that he that she was asking him to be her redeemer, to take her as his wife. And that's how he would have understood the idea of spread your wings over me. Because that idea of spreading your wings over me is viewed in that culture as a symbolic act of, of establishing a new relationship. It's, it's a symbolic declaration of the husband to the wife that I am going to care for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to shelter you. And even today, if you were to go to a Jewish wedding today, one of the parts of the wedding ceremony 
is that the groom will take this cotton or a silk cloak or a shawl and he will take it and he will take it from his shoulders and he will spread it over his wife's shoulders and cover her with that. And it's, it's a symbol that declares his responsibility to protect and to provide for her from that day forward. And so that's what Ruth is indirectly but very clearly proposing to Boaz. Will you be my Redeemer? But now we come to the potential problem in this whole plan here. And why it was such a risk for Ruth to take. And we see that in verses 10 through 13. And this is Boaz's response. And he says... May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. You see, Boaz would have been completely within his rights to have looked at Ruth when she made this proposal and said, no, it's not my responsibility. It's not my place. There's this other person who's a much closer relative than I am. Go and ask him. But I don't want anything to do with it. That would have been his right. He could have very easily done that. He could have, in that way, rejected Ruth because he was not the the, the closest um, relative that they had. That was the possibility. But I really believe that Naomi and, and consequently Ruth believed, like I said earlier, that it wasn't by accident that Ruth had been gleaning in Boaz's field. They believed that God had led Ruth there and as a result believed that God wanted Boaz to be their redeemer. But, you know, for I think we all, you would know this, if you follow Christ, you know that sometimes when we take that step of faith, when we truly believe this is what God wants us to do, taking that next step of faith requires risk. It requires Stepping out of our, of our comfort zone. And, and it requires sometimes taking a risk that might not make a lot of sense from the outside. When the world looks at it and we take that step of faith, sometimes the world's going to think, you know, I don't understand. Why are you doing that? You had things so good here. Why have you moved on? I, I'll just give you a, a brief example from, from our own lives. Um, of a time that we had to take a, a step of faith that was, from all practical intents and purposes, you know, foolish from, from an earthly perspective. About, um, boy, 10, 12 years ago, I guess it was now, I was working as a youth pastor in California. And we, we, we had a, a great church, a, a great staff, great people to work with, great friends that were there. You know, we, we, we owned a home. Um, you know, we were living the, the American dream. Things were, couldn't really get much better, we thought. And had no reason to want to move on or to want to leave. 
And um, one Sunday, our pastor was preaching through a series on, you know, finding your purpose in life. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down as he's preaching through the series thinking, you know, I've, I know my purpose. I'm here. I'm a youth pastor. I'm serving God. I'm doing what God wants me to do. You know, there's probably not much for me here. And he gets to the end of the message. And he, this, this Sunday, he's talking about finding your shape. You know, finding the way that God has shaped you and gifted you to serve him. And as he's preaching about that, I realize that, you know, my shape and how my, my giftings and my passions, they changed in the last 15 years that I've been doing youth ministry. And that's not really, at that point in my life, wasn't really my passion anymore. And I remember the next Tuesday going into his office and having the conversation with him and saying, you know, I don't know that it's my calling anymore to stay here as a youth pastor. And we spent the next six months working through trying to come up with a way with the the elders at the church, that I could stay on staff there and kind of transition to another position. And eventually they decided, you know, we feel like we agree. God's calling you on to something else. We don't know what it is. You don't know what it is, but God's calling you to move on. And so we ended up leaving that church, and we spent a year and a half uh, living with Malia's parents here in Yakima, looking for that next ministry position. And, you know, it was going through interview process after interview process, and Church after church where either they'd say, no, you're not the right fit, or we'd say, no, that's not the right fit. And finally, there was a church, a small church in Portland that, um, that, I, that I found online, and I sent off a resume, and we went through the whole interview process, and they wanted to hire an associate pastor to come in and work under the senior pastor. But it was, like I said, it was a small church. It was a church of about 100. They didn't have a lot of money. So they said, you know, we, I know, you know, it's you and your wife. You've got three kids. But here's what we can do. We can pay you $300 a month, and we'll give you a place to live. And we said, sure, that sounds great. We can do that. We can feed a family of five and everything for 300 bucks a month. And you know, it, it, we were just thinking, you know, it doesn't make sense. This is a huge risk. I don't understand why we're doing it. But this feels like what God's calling us to do. And, you know, from every outside perspective, it seemed foolish. And I remember talking to um, the, the husband of one of Malia's cousins, and we're, we're talking through this whole process, and, and we're thinking, because he's one of the most practical people I know in so many ways. And so we're thinking when we tell him, you know, what the offer is, he'll say, well, no, that's, you shouldn't do that. That'd be foolish. And he was the most encouraging, supportive guy. He was like, yeah, you guys should do this. I think that would be great. It would be a perfect position for you, and you could do such great things there. And he just saw all these positives that we were like, okay, Scott, that's got to be the voice of God, because that's not what you would normally say. And so, you know, we went there, and we took the position, and it was six years that, it was six really difficult years, but it was six years that I don't think any one of us in our family would do anything to take him back because of the things that we saw God do and the, the, the blessings that, that were there. So sometimes taking that step of faith requires you taking a risk. So, you know, just think about that in your own life. What is the risk that God is calling you to take? What's that next step of faith that God wants you to take? And if it requires you stepping out and taking a risk, 
that maybe some of your friends and family are going to look at and say, what are you doing? Why are you leaving that good position to go and work with those kids in the inner city? Why are you selling your nice home in the suburbs to come and, and, and live down where people are hurting and broken? You know, or whatever it is, that, that step that God's calling you to take. You know, why are you investing so much of your life, you know, to, to spend a week and go on a mission trip? I, I have uh, two good friends that work with us at the church in California who they, after we left the church there, they felt God's calling to go to the mission field. And he was a very successful fertility doctor. Um, you know, he had literally a million-dollar home that they'd built for themselves probably three years um, before we left. And they just so strongly felt God calling to go to the mission field. They literally sold everything that they had. What they couldn't sell, they put in storage, left it all behind, and even today now, they are serving the Lord in a missions hospital in Africa. I mean, and, it, and they're, they're in some of the most impoverished and in some cases war-torn areas of Africa. There have been times where their lives have been in danger and they've been told you know, that they need to get out, but they stay there. Taking that risk because that's what they believe God has called them to do. So there, there's so much more to the story, and, and Pastor Kevin's going to get into a lot more of it next week and get into Boaz's response to Ruth's proposal. But just one last thing that I want to leave you with this morning and point out, and that's going back to Ruth's proposal. That one key verse of the passage where Ruth says, spread your wings over your servant. One thing that I think we forget as we read the Bible today, you know, 21st century American Western culture. We read the Bible and it's all laid out for us here. You got the nice chapter divisions. We've got all these verses. We can lose sight that when Ruth was originally written, the author didn't sit down and say, okay, chapter one, here's Ruth or Naomi going to Moab. Chapter two, here's Ruth gleaning. Chapter three, I'll write about. He wrote this as one complete story and it was intended for you to sit down and read as one work of literature in one sitting and as you look at it and you read it that way there are things that begin to jump out you start to see certain phrases that are repeated and see things that are emphasized and one of those phrases is this one here spread your wings over your servant because the phrase that ruth uses when she makes this proposal to boaz is very similar to a phrase that Boaz uses back in chapter 2, verse 12, when he offers up a prayer for Ruth. In, in Ruth 2, 12, Boaz says, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz's prayer for Ruth in chapter 2 is, you have come here and now I pray that God will spread his wings over you and provide you with reference. With, with, I can't even say the word now. Refuge. But, and now we come to chapter 3 and Ruth's proposal to Boaz is, Will you spread your wings over me? Will you be my refuge? 
Will you be the one that God uses to answer your prayer that you just prayed for me not so long ago? Boaz asks, or Ruth asks Boaz to spread his wings over her. And as we're going to see next week, okay, spoiler alert if you haven't already figured it out, Boaz redeems Ruth. I mean, that's the end of the story. I'm sorry, Kevin. I gave the whole thing away. Uh, I, that's, I ruined it for you all. But, you know, that's a picture for us of how God is our Redeemer. God is the one who through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross has redeemed us all. Through the example of Boaz, we see that God is a Redeemer who stands by the oppressed, who rescues those who are in bondage, who sets the captives free, who gives us a new hope and gives us freedom in Christ. The book of Galatians Chapter 4 explains it like this. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 3 through 6. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul says we were enslaved to sin. We were people who are in bondage to sin. Because every single one of us, the Bible makes it abundantly clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's every single one of us. We are sinners and slaves to sin apart from God. We are spiritually dead. But the beauty of it is, just like the story of Ruth doesn't stop with her and Naomi in Moab, it goes on, Paul goes on and tells the rest of the story. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God sent His Son, Jesus. Jesus was the only one who could be our Redeemer, the only one who could pay the price for us to bring us out of bondage, to break the bonds of sin in our lives. Because He lived a perfect, sinless life. So He, when He gave His life on the cross, could be our sacrifice. Says he came to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If we trust God, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we accept his sacrifice on the cross for ourselves as the payment for our sins. He will be our Redeemer. And just as Boaz redeeming Ruth is a picture of that, God offers that to us because He knows that we need reminders that He is our Redeemer. He knows that we're forgetful people. If you read through the Old Testament, one thing you'll see again and again and again is that God continually provides His people with reminders of who He is and what He has done. You know, the, the, the Passover ceremony, the, the symbolism in the tabernacle and the temple. 
of the mezuzah that the Jewish people were told to put on the doorpost of their house. You know, even for us today, he provides us reminders. What did we celebrate last week? We celebrated communion, the Lord's table, is a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. What did Jesus say? The Last Supper, when he established communion, he said, do this in remembrance of me, so that you remember my sacrifice again and again and again. So this morning, because I know I'm a forgetful person, and I'm assuming that you guys probably are too, we need reminders. And so as I was thinking about, you know, how can I remind us about being redeemed? Because redemption isn't something we talk about a lot in our culture today. You don't go somewhere and redeem something very many places. The one place I can think of where there is a place called a redemption center, you know where it is? Go to an arcade. What do you do? You go to an arcade, you play a little pop-a-shot game or skee-ball or whatever. What happens? It spits out tickets. What are those tickets for? So you can go to the redemption center and you can pick out the great stuffed animal that you spent 20 bucks on tickets so you could get like a $5 stuffed animal at Toys R Us. Uh, but I mean, that, that's the idea of what it is. You take one of these tickets, actually take this and this and this, and do you have the rest of that roll, Kevin? Because we probably need that if we're going to buy anything worthwhile there. But you take these tickets and you go and you can buy back something from there with the tickets that you've earned. And so I want everybody, I'm going to give these to you guys, and I want you to take one and pass them around and, and take it and put it somewhere that you're going to be reminded of what Jesus did for you when He redeemed you. That's what this is all about. Be reminded of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Stick it in your wallet. Stick it on a mirror. Stick it in your car. Somewhere where you're going to see it. And when you see that ticket, you're going to remember that, yeah, this is just a small ticket. It's a little token. But Jesus gave His life so that you might be redeemed. Let's pray.